Good morning, everybody. Jess is ready. <laughs> um, so basically, the, the thinking behind this um, lecture is there's so much literature that's always coming out. It's kind of tough to keep up to date with things. Uh, I'm a big Twitter ID person, and I literally like every single article that comes up, and I try to go through them as much as possible, but it's tough. So uh, the thinking behind this was maybe in the I'll go through a couple of uh, publications, not just studies that have come out uh, in the past year uh, that I thought were pretty interesting that I hope everybody else would find kind of interesting too. Uh, luckily, all the ones I chose actually ended up being published in the past couple of months, so all, all in 2023. So hopefully you guys enjoy. So the first one I'm starting off with is uh, this uh, NEJM uh, study. Uh, it was uh, post-exposure doxycycline to prevent bacterial STIs, uh, published on the 6th of April of this year. Um, this was a open-label uh, randomized study. Um, so the purpose was uh, to assess the effectiveness, safety, uh, acceptability, and effect on antimicrobial resistance for doxypep in the MSM and transgender uh, women population. Uh, and there's two cohorts, uh, patients on HIV prep um, and then the, and those uh, persons living with HIV. So the method for this, uh, so this was uh, an open label study, uh, power to assess doxypep in those two groups that I mentioned. Um, the participants were randomly assigned two to one to receive doxypep uh, or standard of care without doxypep. Uh, it took place in two sexual health clinics in San Fran and Seattle. Uh, the participant criteria that I have listed there, 18 years of age, assigned male sex at birth, uh, diagnosed with HIV or planning to start HIV prep, uh, condomless and anal or oral sex with a man in the previous 12 months, and then diagnosed with uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, or early syphilis in the previous 12 months. Um, patients that were not eligible were those who had a tetracycline allergy or, uh, of course, taking meds that, were, that could interact with uh, doxycycline. So the what they kind of the intervention or the counseling that was done, uh, the patient that the patient population, the cohort that received doxypep, they were told to take 200 milligrams of doxy within 24 hours, but no later than 72 hours after any condomless, anogenital, vaginal, or oral uh, sex, and no more than one dose every 24 hours. Uh, and these participants had quarterly visits at the two clinics that I had mentioned. Um, and they had interim visits uh, in between as well for about a year. Um, and the amount of doxy was kind of determined by how much the patients use themselves, uh, how much they requested, and uh, the frequency of their uh, sexual acts. So um, basically given as needed uh, to, to the patients, there's no restriction. Um, they also performed a quarterly uh, nucleic acid amplification testing of the pharynx, rectum, and urine for gonorrhea, chlamydia, the triple screen that we uh, do in our clinics as well. Uh, There's also quarterly syphilis serologies that were done. Um, and those patients that have positive gonorrhea testing were actually asked to return for uh, resistance testing uh, as well. And the te tetracycline resistance for was defined as MIC of two. Uh, all the groups were also assessed uh, for staph aureus and the nares uh, and oropharynx, and resistance testing was done uh, for them as well with the MIC of 16 defined as uh, resistance. 
So endpoints that they looked at, um, the primary effectiveness endpoint uh, was the incidence of at least one bacterial STI, gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis each quarter. Uh, and then they also looked at antimicrobial resistance outcomes, to tetracycline resistance in uh, gonorrhea and staph aureus. Um, and then secondary incidence of each individual STI, safety and adverse events were looked at as well. Uh, there was a, uh, they used O'Brien Fleming uh, stopping boundaries for to assess effectiveness with the uh, alpha level on both sides being 0.025 and that actual uh, board recommended early discontinuation and uh, to recommend doxypep for uh, all the patients in, involved in the study. So I know it's tough, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pictures in here. So anyways, uh, 641 patients underwent initial randomization and at the end, 317 were in the PrEP cohort and 156 in the persons living with HIV cohort. Um, just some overall stats about the patients that were included. The participants in the three months prior to enrollment had a median of nine sexual partners, uh, five sexual acts per month, uh, and 90% of these acts were condomless. Um, and then 30% of these patients had an act active STI um, when they were enrolled in the study. So I know this is a lot, there's a lot going on here too. Just some of the things I took away from uh, the baseline characteristics of the patients. Um, the race was predominantly white. Uh, Hispanics, Asians, and Blacks were underrepresented in the, in the study. Um, another thing that I noted, there was a trend towards a higher annual income in the PrEP cohort compared to the persons living with HIV. Um, I think some things can be taken away from that. Maybe they have a little bit higher health literacy uh, asking for PrEP. Um, so that I think that could be a possible connection that could be made there. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that, that probably play, plays a big role uh, here. Um, and then there's a part of this, this is a long chart. Um, the additional part of it uh, showed Sorry. Uh, so the, the median number of sexual partners in the past three months were about the same between both cohorts. Um, the persons living with HIV group actually had a higher uh, prevalence of transactional sex during their lifetime. Um, and then substance use in the past three months was also more prevalent um, in the HIV cohort. So this is the PrEP cohort uh, results. Um, so in the doxypep group in the and this is overall like i said the prep cohort uh sti was diagnosed in 10 percent of a quarterly visits in the doxy group compared to uh 31 percent in the standard of care group um gonorrhea was the most frequent uh trans sexually transmitted infection that was diagnosed here and the number needed to treat uh, to prevent uh, an sti in this cohort was 4.7 um most of the trends uh although like the, the chlamydia, pharyngeal chlamydia doesn't reach um, uh, significance, but uh, kind of all trended towards um, lesser prevalence in the in the doxycycline group. And this is the persons living with HIV uh, cohort. Um, so here there was a 11.8% um, prevalence of STI uh, to be diagnosed during a quarterly visit compared to 30% in the standard of care. 
Um, similarly, the gonorrhea was the most commonly uh, diagnosed infection. Uh, there was a little bump in, uh, in rectal chlamydia as well was seen here. Um, and the number needed to treat in this cohort was uh, 5.3. So just going over some of the other additional topics of discussion with regards to this study. So adverse events, there were not much. There were five, five total adverse events, three di diarrhea episodes, two headaches slash migraines. It was tough to kind of even attribute that to the doxy itself. Um, Tetracycline resistance in the gonorrhea isolates uh, was 38% of the doxy group versus 12 in standard of care. And the staph aureus, uh, was there, there was a 5% tetracycline resistance in the doxy group versus 4% in standard of care. Um, the, the one thing that they mentioned, their cultures were limited. Uh, a lot of them, they weren't able to get cultures. They treated patients initially. Some of them didn't come back to get their resistance testing done. So there was, there's not much endpoints. Um, and then the other thing, staph aureus carriage in, uh, in the doxy group was 40% less than the uh, standard of care group. So I guess that was a side effect of that. <laughs> um, additional points. Uh, so like I mentioned, there's a, a higher proportion, though limited, of uh, staph aureus resistance in the doxy group. Chlamydial cultures are still pending, so they're still collecting that data with regards to resistance and if there's a trend towards uh, resistance or not. Um, and then some other things to keep in mind is whether you know th this will select out resistant Neisseria species, this, the effects on gut microbiome, um, and other uh, effects on other SCI pathogens. Um, limitations, it was tough to measure the adherence to doxypep uh, and even sexual activity because it was all based on uh, recall from the patients. Um, so there's that uh, limitation there as well. Um, and uh, transgender women enrollment was less than 5%. So that was um, not, not as many uh, in that group. Um, there was a trend towards syphilis reduction in the persons living with HIV, uh, and uh, there was a reduction seen in the PrEP cohorts as well. And this had picked up steam in, uh, in the social media, I mean, in like media in general, uh, I screenshotted this, so I'm sorry for the Xfinity <laughs> on the side, but I'm calling it the morning after pill to prevent uh, sexually transmitted infections. <laughs> uh -huh. Are we 
are we really going to be able to get this to the people who are actually having multiple STDs and passing on multiple STDs, or are we going to be getting this to the more wealthier, often whiter yeah. people um, and population? So not that, that they should get it, but so should others. So. Yeah. I think you, you did hit on a couple like uh, interesting. So certainly, like the prep arm, the follow up was actually pretty good. Like mm -hmm. even up to a year, over ninety percent of them are still following up. Um, but a lot of that's going to be you know people who are more uh, likely to get medical care, follow up appointments, that kind of thing. Um, because that's what prep requires anyway. Um, and then the group of the uh, patients living with HIV, the people randomized to the drug arm. Followed up a little bit better. Uh, I guess the bigger one, but it was like in the mid 80s, even up to like 85% yeah. still. But in the people who were in the standard of care, it was down to like 73% of the year. And even at like the first time point in three months, it was in the 70, 77%. And that's a bias that happens in any study where it's an open um, open label study. One person is getting a drug and the other person is not getting anything. So knowing you are enrolled in the study and receiving the intervention, patients are more likely to actually follow yeah. up. Um, so that's, I mean, it's definitely a thing to kind of consider with this. And I think certainly if you have a compliant patient who's adherent to the care, shows up to follow up appointments, very motivated, this is definitely potentially an option. I think if, if you don't have that, then you kind of really have to figure out how to factor into your yeah. practice because um, you may only get, you know, one or two shots at seeing those patients. And so you want to make sure you're optimizing everything um, with those opportunities. And then the other thing too, um, this is just kind of like an aside. I know up every once in a while we'll talk about it but the pcr test for uh gonorrhea when you test on the pharynx will cross react with niceria and yes. uh, posterior oropharynx so it, it's harder to diagnose oropharyngeal gonorrhea with that test um you have to almost do a culture but that's obviously time intensive and not practical but it is something to just consider when people are using that to diagnose um oropharyngeal gonorrhea that it might not be the best test dr morano has yeah hi thank you so much can you all hear me okay um, this is so exciting and so timely. Y'all can hear me, right? Um, so we actually gave a, a national VA uh, orientation to DoxyPrep yesterday, which was really great. We're happy to, to send those slides out. I send them to the VA faculty, but certainly can send them to the broader audience. Um, two, great presentation, two major points. Um, uh, this is a great study. Of course, it all started with the Ypergay study, which was the PrEP study in France. Um, and fun fact, it actually started with U.S. military profi. They started uh, STI profi back in the 1940s uh, with penicillin and then tried azithromycin. And so tetracycline was kind of the, the newest. As you remember, the ciprofloxacin resistance with gonorrhea back uh, that, that occurred. So, yes, we'll, we'll definitely see. But, yes, the early data is, um, is definitely reassuring. Um, second important point, I think this was not effective in cisgendered women. Uh, the CROI data from 2023 showed, unfortunately, was not effective um, in a Kenyan cohort. So that's important, too. Right now, it's just for anatomical uh, males, so transgendered women and, and cisgendered males. Um, so that's, I think, important point also. Um, and also also prescribing. So in VA, we are rolling this out. We're really excited about it. But um, for policy implications, um, the prescribing obviously should match the indications. We had uh, one interesting case where the patient was self-treating for URI. So you have to be, obviously, very good about your education. I think your institutional policies in terms of, um, you know, making sure that prescription actually reads the way um, it's supposed to be taken. But no, very, very exciting and um, happy to share. Um, we actually did a um, CROI abstract analysis on all, all these data too, so can share that with the faculty and fellows widely. But thanks. Great. Very timely and very exciting. Thank you. She took the words out of my mouth, but that's actually what I was going to comment on is cisgender um, female. Exactly. Another implication in women of childbearing potential is, right, is 
if they're yeah. pregnant, you know, her genetics. Um, another thing is the prescribing has to be very, we have to be great stewards if we're going to do this. And we have to just, you know, do the appropriate dosing and the day supply because we did have a, a case with the VA, person living with HIV, who had like a 30 day supply of doxy, not any of our providers, and was told by their provider, just use it after, you know, you have a, an exposure. But then he, he, he was he got TB, LTBI, they put him on a he got a rat on INH, and then he quit it, obviously. And then he tells me, oh, and I also took doxy around the same time, the rash, or why were you taking? And it turns out this was the reason why, but he had like, this um, so and what were, were do you actually had an exposure? No, no, I just had a story. You know, so patients who you cannot give these antibiotics to patients and let them do whatever they, they want to do with it. So I, I thought maybe this could be a hypersensitive reaction that you could get with oxy as well. So it just was a really a limitation of the blood pressure. So if if it re if we really do start rolling it out and and we start doing it, be conscientious of the prescribing. Yeah, I was thinking like um, like patients might start to share it with us. Yeah. Yeah. Partners. Yeah. Okay, they have allergies yeah. and now anyone is getting Yeah. And the potential for resistance, obviously. Yeah. And just the side effects as well, like he'll induce a don't yeah. forget about that. The GI disturbances. Let's go down. Yeah. It feels like these kind of patients also, if they don't have HIV, they should be on prep. Yeah. Yeah. They're using doxy for morning after. Yeah. Should be on, on technically yeah. be on prep. Yeah. At least at that time, you have that three months follow up and testing for doxy. You don't want to under treat also an STI because they might acquire it and then they're taking the one time dose. Yeah. Yeah. Just the way that this article states this as morning after, and it sounds like it's like a one time yeah. dose or something. I, I don't know. It just sounds. Yeah, it's just a one time. Has yeah. anybody looked into what the implications are for doing stuff like this and seeing if that socially kind of emboldens people to have condomless sex, therefore increasing the rest the rates of things that aren't controlled with doxycycline, viral infections, herpes, HSV, that sort of thing. So are is that an inadvertent side effect of saying, oh, you have doxy, you're protected from gonorrhea, chlamydia, go wild? So I think are going to have condomless sex for sure, 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 right? Um, in the back, back in the days, we used to tell people abstain. We know that's not true. no, of course. Right? So the same logic was used for prep initially, mm. right? Like, are we going to give them prep? Or are they going to just? Right. But I think patients, people's behavior—they're not going to change. There's, they're they're going to do engage in risky behavior regardless. I think, and I think prep and this. It's just, well, you engage in that behavior, let's remedy it, let's treat it, because uh, a strong indicator of future behavior is past behavior. So people are not really, not always change their behaviors. Um, but I, I totally, that's but, but that's an important part of the counseling, just like it is for prep. Yeah. Right. Prep doesn't prevent STDs, yeah. doxycycline does not prevent HSV. 
Yeah, no, that's good. Can I just add, I'm sorry, um, this is really great. And I think part, and also what the VA does and what we do in our telehealth practice, we give a orientation sheet. So we actually have a prep orientation sheet, HIV, Hep C, um, SSP for syringe. And so I think in terms of policy, absolutely, I think a, a nice counseling sheet that, you know, providers are consistent is, is important. And yes, people are going to have encounters, you know, really, um, you know, regardless of, of medicines. And that's what we're trying to do is, is actually decrease that harm um, potential uh, with prescribing. And exactly, PrEP and Doxy, it's, it's really intertwined, I think, at this point, because um, the evidence is there for cisgendered men and transgendered women. So yeah, no, I think that's great. But I think it's, it's only benefits um, the situation. Uh, yeah, I guess my, my question is more so for people who may be like, does the high, their incidence of high risk behavior go up more so than, than do people like, I, people who are, are going to, are going to kind of have these encounters are going to have these encounters are hundred percent right. Um, so you might as well kind of mit like mitigate as many risks as possible. But I'm just curious if like, especially with articles like like the one he's showing, is there maybe a, you know, it, it's like like a sense a little a little too much of a sense of safety if we promote it like this, and therefore like like incidents go up for people who maybe normally would be a little bit more cautious. Does their condom use go down, for instance, as it go from, you know, being 10% of the time to 2% of the time, for instance? Right. Like, does this increase condom sex, basically? Right. I see it, like with PrEP, like, right. do you see increased STI? There's some data that suggests that there's increased STIs um, in people on PrEP. Right. I understand that there's not like a, a straightforward, like, this is this is the right thing to do and that, you know, risky behaviors are going to continue, but you know, especially between that and the, you know, people kind of just willy nilly using it for God only knows what and maybe using it in, you know, ways where, you know, they can make themselves really sick with other pharmacy. They're get, they've got the supply of doxy home that they just, you know, are taking with and they have a acute medical condition for which they get a new med and oh, no, I guess our throat and so um, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's part of the counseling. Um, on the on the VA side as yeah. far as like yeah. appropriate. I can, I can, yeah, I can speak to that. Well, first of all, I mean, this article, if you remember, is Vox.com, right? Which is not a, really a public health, right? So public yeah, health messaging, right? Is reading, a little nobody's bit, reading the public health things right. they're reading Vox. <laughs> so. right. No, no, I'm with you, I'm with you. But, but I think messaging is important, absolutely, right? And yes, the VA does counsel and, and we're still in the process. Each facility has a different uh, protocol. But yes, we, we do counsel in terms of harm reduction and risk reduction. Yes. And, and yes, did we see incident STI increases a bit with PrEP? Yes. But we have to do harm reduction and it evens out over time. So I think the evidence shows that's a trajectory, right? The arch of harm reduction is, is bending in the favor of, of HIV prevention, um, many HIV infections averted with PrEP, right? So yes, yeah. I agree. And, and the messaging is important. But on the whole, I think we'll see that we're, we're having averted STIs and the evidence is, is clearly going in that direction. But those are excellent points. Gotcha. Awesome discussion. So next one I have. Hydrocortisone and severe cap. So me and uh, Dr. Green, when this came out, we're going over it and geeking out. Um, so <laughs> this was, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we were at, we were at the day yeah. working together. So. Uh, so this was published March 23rd, 2023. Um, so this is a double-blind randomized control superiority trial conducted at 31 French centers. Um, 
adult inclusion criteria, 18 years of age, admitted to ICU for severe CAP. I'm going to get to how they define severe CAP. Uh, Non-inclusion criteria, DNI status, uh, pneumonia secondary to influenza, <clears throat> and patients with septic shock initially um, upon admission to the ICU, they were not included. Um, diagnosis of pneumonia was through clinical and radiologic criteria. Pathogen identification was left up to the medical team in the studies that were so how they define severity of pneumonia. So um, presence of at least one of the four following criteria, um, mechanical ventilation with a PEEP of at least five, uh, high flow nasal cannula with PDF ratio less than 300, uh, non-rebreather uh, less than PDF ratio of uh, three, less than 300, and then a PSI score greater than 130. Uh, we probably learned about PSI score during residency. Um, so I just have criteria that they use their age, uh, comorbidities, and then look at specific lab values, uh, such as sodium, glucose, hemoglobin, things of that sort. So the intervention that was done, so standard of care, antibiotics, and supportive care was done by the medical teams themselves. Choice of respiratory support was by the medical teams themselves as well. Uh, the, so what the intervention that was done, so within 24 hours after onset of severity criteria, which we just discussed, uh, IV hydrocortisone, 200 milligrams daily, uh, was given for at least four days. Um, now, the the total duration was between eight to 14 days, depending on the patient's uh, clinical condition. That was kind of determined by the, there were some preset, uh, predefined criteria that was given to the teams, and they decided based off of that whether to extend uh, therapy to 14 days or, or uh, complete therapy at eight days. Uh, and of course, on discharge from the ICU, uh, they were discontinued from the hydrocortisone. And the patients were randomized one-to-one. Uh, -one. So outcomes that were looked at, the primary outcome was death uh, from any cause at day 28. And there's a good amount of secondary outcomes as well that are pretty extensive. Um, death from any cause at day 90, length of ICU stay, uh, need for non-invasive ventilation or uh, intubation among patients that initially came in with non-invasive ventilation, uh, initiation of vasopressor therapy by day 28, uh, ventilator and vasopressor free days, change in P to F ratio, change in day seven of uh, SOPA score, uh, and then quality of life by day, day 90. The interesting thing, this was actually started <clears throat> before the COVID pandemic, and they had to kind of uh, put a hold on it once COVID hit in in France and uh, just because of the burden of everything that was going on uh, in the hospitals. Uh, P-value of 0.049 was considered statistically significant and they used a uh, chi-square test to analyze uh, day 28 uh, mortality. So, another picture. So anyways, 400 patients were in the hydrocortisone group versus 395 in placebo. So 795 total included in the primary analysis. Um, and the baseline characteristics, uh, were there, there weren't much uh, significant differences from when I was uh, going through the baseline uh, characteristics. And uh, sorry, I didn't mention this. The reason why I decided to include this, we have two fellows going to ICU next year, and we often are consulted on ICU patients. So I think this is something that uh, would be beneficial uh, for us to know. Thanks. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, they did do a statistical analysis, but there was about uh, there was more people with COPD in the placebo arm. Right. Important for pneumonia, yeah. with holding steroids too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
So here are the primary and secondary outcomes. Um, so in the, the hydrocortisone group versus the placebo group, the hydrocortisone group, death by day 28. Um, the total the total number was 25 patients out of 400, so 6.2% versus placebo was 40, 47 patients out of 395, 11.9. Um, there are trends towards, uh, you know, lower death by day 90, um, cumulative incidence of endotracheal intubation by day 28, and non-invasive ventilation by day 28 in the hydrocortisone group as well. Um, the safety outcomes, uh, so yes, the number, the percentage of ventilator-associated pneumonia and bloodstream infections were uh, a little lower in the hydrocortisone group, which I found surprising. I would have thought that they would have been a little more immunosuppressed and um, possibly would have had more complications with related to infections. Um, and then even the GI bleeding, cumulative incidence of GI bleeding was uh, a little less in the hydrocortisone group compared to placebo. Um, which which was which I found interesting as well. The the one thing that jumped out was the amount of insulin the patients required in the hydrocortisone group was pretty high. Um, I think the the average daily dose of insulin uh, was 33.5 in the hydrocortisone group versus uh, 20.5 in the placebo group, um, which also plays a big role in ICU management and care. With the the always quoted nice sugar trial back in the day. Uh, that the ICU attendees will talk to us about. Um, but I found that that pretty interesting as well. So I think the exclusion of septic shock was important, at least in initial enrollment, uh, because we know the benefits of septic shock, of uh, steroids and septic shock from previous studies. Um, and in the, in the study itself, they mentioned that the pathophys processes and role for corticoids and septic shock uh, differ, which is why they decided to make that decision. Um, some limitations. Um, no, so no pathogen was identified in 45% of patients. Um, and the one thing they had mentioned was uh, the the observed mortality in the control group was lower than what they had uh, anticipated, uh, which I which I thought was uh, interesting. So um, could possibly mean that the control group that they had was not really representative of the population they thought they were getting. Um, so I think that's an important important caveat. Um, there's no, there's a small percentage of immunocompromised patients uh, in this study. No one looked at uh, afterwards uh, the reversibility of glucocorticoid induced hyperglycemia and whether some of these patients uh, had or developed diabetes later on. That was not uh, taking a look at the neuropsych uh, and neuromuscular effects of glucocorticoids was not um, commented on. Uh, there's no standardized use of antimicrobials. Um, and then they also use continuous dosing of hydrocortisone and not the bolus dosing um, that we sometimes use for like for septic shock often. Um, so I don't know. This is my last slide on this on this study. I don't know if anybody has any comments on that, or we can save it until the end. Um, I think I mean, you made this point excluding the hydrocortisone because uh, that's a wonderful study. Mm -hmm. um, there's no mortality benefiting to this, but it was like time disability patients with septic shock. So it is really important to kind of try to remove that as part of the equation because we do know there's at least something suggesting there's a benefit of just steroids alone and like. Uh, yeah, I think it's kind of benefit because in septic patients, there's a 
early recognition of sepsis and even when we these patients with severe pneumonia on the ICU, um, that there is a benefit of early steroids. I think one of the things that really stood out to me was to see less vasopressors mm -hmm. and less um, uh, non-invasive ventilation patients yeah. that receive steroids. But maybe that like, you're catching it like an earlier day. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that, that that's definitely, I mean, it makes sense. So my third article is from uh, the Journal of American College of Cardiology, um, published on the 4th of April. Uh, found this one while I was on the VA service uh, with Dr. Ayler. I think we had a uh, cardiac device infection patient in the in the ICU, so I thought this was pretty um Relevant. So this was just this wasn't a study. This was just a review to assess the burden of these uh, cardiac device infections on healthcare, evidence for treatment, and, and the barriers to, to treatment and early diagnosis. So address gaps in, in knowledge and and why there's a poor compliance to recommendations, which from our end is always to kind of take out the device as soon as possible. Um, and they looked at you know a lot of. Uh, literature review of papers published in the past 15 years on this uh, subject. So just going over the economic burden of uh, cardiac device infection. So um, the rapid trial, cardiologists always come with great names for their trials. Um, so the the mean payer cost for infection with Medicare Advantage was about $58,000 plus or minus uh, $29,000. And with Medicare fee for service, it was around twenty-six thousand plus or minus fourteen thousand, which is pretty pretty significant cost. Um, they had some cool images in this study. I would definitely recommend uh, people taking a look at the study um, with the localized pocket infection, device erosion in C, um, an actual angiovac uh, vegetation that was taken out in C, uh, and then a lead vegetation in D. So uh, clinical outcomes and healthcare utilization, a couple of things that they mentioned. Um, so there's a retrospective uh, study of these uh, cardiac device infections from 91 to 2008 uh, that found that antimicrobial therapy alone without device extraction was associated with a sevenfold higher 30-day uh, mortality. And even early versus delayed extraction also revealed differences. Um, extraction on initial presentation compared to those who had extraction after antimicrobial therapy had a one-year mortality of 11.4% versus 44%. So uh, pretty significant. And there's a recent analysis of the Medicare population with only 25% of these patients undergoing extraction um, and cumulative one-year mortality at 30 days of this particular population was 33 33% versus 18.5%. Uh, um, the one caveat, uh, these studies aren't randomized, um, and uh, the delayed extraction cohorts probably had older patients, more frail patients, uh, and patients with more end-stage uh, diseases, which is a thing to take into consideration. Okay. So um, we have, there's, Generally, five guidelines that give recs on these device infections, AHA, British Heart Rhythm Society, uh, European Society of Cardiology and Heart, uh, Heart Rhythm Society, and they all have a class one indication for complete system removal with a defined infection, systemic. And, and the IDSA does sign on to the AHA. Okay. It's, it's AHA, ACC, it's like American College Cardiology, American Heart Association, IDSA, it's a ton of They all jumped on. 2017, yeah. Okay. 
Um, so yeah, so they basically infection with a systemic local bacteria, bacteremia or endocarditis, and it's all a classical indication for complete system removal. Um, but recently, looking at a recent analysis of U.S. Medicare database, uh, greater than eight out of ten patients uh, were not treated according to guidelines uh, with early, which is pretty pretty high. Uh, number, especially for us. I mean, I think our, we're always about taking out uh, the device if possible. Um, and just with the burden on the system uh, overall, I think it's important to take into consideration. Um, so here there's there's two, this is a one a graph on one-year mortality for cardiac uh, device infections with uh, the top is extraction versus no extraction and the bottom chart is uh, early extraction versus delayed. Um, So the article does a good job of kind of identifying different barriers to guideline adherence. Uh, so first is identification of the actual infection itself, uh, prompt referral of these patients with infections and access to extraction. So there's a study from European Society of Cardiology where they sent out a survey to try to identify these barriers. Um, so besides the gaps, you know, gaps in knowledge, physician knowledge and skills in uh, diagnosing these infections, uh, there's referral barrier, there's access to extraction center. And the, the interesting one that they had found from this survey was there's a fear of losing a patient to an extracting physician, uh, which I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and then like the, the, the physicians that they sent the, the patient to to get the device to just stay with that doc and not go back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just pretty, pretty interesting. Um, so I guess cardiologists are humans too. I wouldn't go back to And then they, of course, mentioned patient comorbidities, age of the lead, um, as being additional barriers as well. So this is a pretty cool um, illustration that they had in the in the uh, paper, um, kind of talking about some of the risk factors for device infections, the different manifestations of pocket infection versus systemic infection, um, and the key stakeholders in these in these patients uh, and the barriers and how to how to kind of address these barriers. Um, they, of course, you know, they gave us a shout out and said timely involvement of uh, infectious disease to help in management is important. Um, another uh, option they mentioned to kind of address this issue was incorporating an EMR alert system where um, physicians are sent an alert uh, about positive cultures in patients with device infections. And I think that's been implemented in some some places with some some trends towards uh, improved management of these patients. Um, yeah, that was, I think. That's... I was about to say, I feel like most of it is just like, yeah. we're like, remove it, remove it, yeah. remove it. No, they, they, 15 days or yeah, 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 they talk about like the, the comorbidities, the age of the lead, like how, how invasive, the, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they mentioned that too. Because I think that's a, something that we fall or encounter a lot with extraction and the hesitancy. In general, uh, yeah. hardware. getting rid of any hardware <laughs> at all, ever. Yeah. Just sometimes we don't think about how easy it is to put in a new device. Yeah. How can the patient survive without that hard yeah. sometimes? And can they have any mobility in their knee? Mm -hmm. We kind of look at it 
to remove it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Same with the catheters, right? For the, that they use for people. Yeah. When to remove it? Yeah. A large proportion, if not a majority, of people with pacemakers are not actually paced. Yeah. They are, um, and you can, I mean, you'll see them in the hospital. There, mm -hmm. like, you can see like their patient pipes are barely firing, they'll interrogate it, and it's not really done because they had someone classified that was like six sinus in the room and they had aphids at one point and the device was in. So, especially in those patients who aren't even firing facing, even more of a reason to take it out or not kind of get tested about it. Um, for for y'all, I would really encourage you to go read the 2017 guidelines. It's one of the best written um, consensus guidelines out there in terms of management. Very clear. Uh, management algorithms, it goes through all the literature. It does in the IDSA one in 2017, they kind of made this new, IDSA, basically all this. They made this new exception for people who develop a device infection within the first 30 days, uh, where you're allowed to basically try to target skin flora to see if you can um, not have to take the device out and reassess them, fail, the device doesn't come out. Um, but that's actually based on expert opinion, but very little with this data. Um, it's kind of like this carve out exception right after the device is put in to say, is it just localized to kind of the incision point to get away with not having the treatment? Maybe come back to it again. Um, and then everything else is kind of broken down by organisms so like staph oxide, device comes out, extra in the blood, for the valve uh, versus some other ones. It's kind of, you get kind of mixed areas between your uh, TE side and you're going to have to do extraction or not. Um, so I, I would encourage you all to go look at it. It's very easy to read, straightforward, clear, uh, and then kind of go into it. You can go into all that uh, study with it based on what they talk about. Because the, you already showed it, but another way to say like the morbidity and mortality is through the roof, especially in the device. The article commented all on newer uh, leadless pacemakers and whether they anticipated to reduce infection or have different complications. Yeah, they, they didn't mention they didn't mention the weakness pacemakers, but I I mean I think that'll help us in terms of our management if the patient needs a pacemaker having it and then lead to lesser invasive infections. Um, I think that's important with the leadless, but they didn't mention it in the in the review. They make it harder to extract. They do with the lead, like you said, the first thirty days, lead then doesn't get wrapped in the myocardium. And one thing we always have to think about is there are a lot of hospitals. I can't deal with extracting out those leads embedded in that myocardium. You have to send them to an expert center, and that's where all it is. And to another point, what he said is a lot of people don't even have the, they don't have the pacing going on because, fortunately, 35 years ago, a lot of patients were implanted probably that they implant because they were misdiagnosed. So uh, our aging population is now getting more important. Hopefully, with like we list and all that. So, piggybacking um, on what Dr. Kelly right? Um, what organisms would you be more, you know, driven to remove a line or a device? That's important to know for your boards. So, staff, does it matter if it's MSA or MSSA? Yeah. Uh, probably pseudomonas. Um, I've got this. If it's high, yeah. I know. Yeah, I'm going to consistent. Okay, so that's important to keep in your right? Because I know this time gets muddy, but those organisms, it's like. Okay. So, we actually, for the uh, 
IED infection, uh, even coag negative staph isn't yeah. automatic indication to pull it out because that's one of the most common, if not the most common, causes uh, IED infection. So um, you'll, I mean, you're going to see them all the time, but like we have it, there's someone I had last month that TGH2 uh, has a pacemaker and like persistent staph epibacteremia um, that couldn't necessarily find anything on the leaf, but like auto that comes out because it's, such a high risk of being on there and seeding the uh, device to not let that thing just go. Even some yeah. bacteria that I'm listed on there, but like there's troublesome. Like I've had a patient with cornibacterium, exactly. People see cornibacterium, they called us after a week after it came on, but they thought it was or whatever. Uh, the guy had a patient for about two years and then kind of showed cornibacterium with four out of four bottles through. Yeah. I was like, that needs to come out <laughs> anywhere in It's not listed as one of the bacteria, but as by deposition, you know, that, that can be a troublesome kind of thing. Just for the public, what's your other gram positive law that's considerable that you'd be concerned with CMD? Normally, you treat as skin companion, just like staph and being infected. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. 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 You should, but again, look at everything. There's a matter of factor up there. When you look at the algorithm, the only way to really prove that you truly don't have a CID infection is with a TED. And that's something that we always push for too with these patients. Like you have to get a T. But even if it's negative. But oh well, but it's still take it out. Ideally, yeah. Ideally. Yeah, so like, the last one in, the it, it, in that guideline, it, it's great. I mean, it literally goes through like by organism, like coagulative staph, staph aureus, the acnes, whatever. Those ones that are just very high risk, doesn't matter what your TE says, doesn't matter. Um, you still get it, determine when you're, you put a pacemaker back in, your duration of antibiotics, that kind of thing. Do they have confident endocarditis? Treat for that too. So you're going to get the TE, but it, regardless of the result, some bug, Vagnego staph, staph aureus, P. acnes, um, it's out, it doesn't matter. And then the other ones, it's kind of like negotiable um, based on the clinical status of the patient. But I mean, it, that's what's great in that guideline. It just goes through every single one and it's very easy. So, And most of the people that you were talking to, um, their academic society sign on to that guideline too. So yes. um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So next one I have, uh, shout out to Dr. Canella. Um, this was an abstract presented at ID Week 2022. This is the only one that I have from 2022, so that's my fault. So clinical outcomes of ertapenem in patients with uh, hypoalbuminemia. Um, so methods, methods and outcomes. So this was a retrospective observational single-centered cohort study of patients, hospitalized patients at Loyola Medical Center uh, primary outcome was 30-day all-cause mortality. Um, 
146 patients ended up being included with a 73 uh, in each cohort group with a ser one. The definition of hypoalbuminemia that was used here was a serum albumin less than 2.5 um, being the hypoalbuminemia group. So baseline characteristics, um, age, sex, nutrition status, uh, comorbidities um, were pretty, pretty much the same. There was more CKD seen in the normal albumin group um, in this study. And there was also more ICU patients seen in the hypoalbuminemia group here. So those two, both of those should be taken into consideration with some of the, the results that were here. They also collected Apache 2 scores and uh, Charleston comorbidity index uh, for these patients. So here we have on the on the left is a hypoalbuminemia group and uh, greater than or equal to 2.5 albumin on the right and the p-values you see on the all the way on the right. Um, so there was trends towards increased length of stay uh, and uh, sorry, I forgot, I didn't mention. These patients all received once a day erdipenem. So that was the antibiotic that they received and very highly albumin bound antibiotic. And that was what was um, used here in both these cohorts. In the hypoalbuminemia group, there's increased length of stay, um, ICU length of stay and infection related length of stay. Granted, there were more ICU patients in the hypoalbuminemia group. So that's you would kind of expect a little bit of that trend regardless of the albumin group. Um, there was higher hospital readmission in the hypoalbuminemia group and uh, trends towards mortality being higher at 14, 30, and 90 days in the hypoalbuminemia group, but there did not reach uh, significance. So some of the things in terms of thoughts on this, um, the study suggests that Subjects, you know, with hypervalbuminemia receiving erdipenem had suboptimal clinical outcomes. I talked about the caveats uh, earlier, um, but I think either way, I think you know, therapeutic drug monitoring is something that is you know needed at uh, at most of our institutions, but it's tough to have. Um, and the other question is whether this can be extrapolated to other highly albumin-bound antibiotics like ceftriaxone. Um, so yeah, no, they didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. They didn't break it down. I also could, you know, the, the the study that I found was it didn't it wasn't very extensive. So I'm not sure if they fully published the whole the whole thing. So that's I think that was the other thing I couldn't get exact information. I I did a lot of digging for it, but um, yeah, they didn't they didn't kind of break down the types of infections. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor, yes. We talk about artipenem versus meropenem. Um, there's a really good, uh, I mean, it's, it's a retrospective study, so it's good you can do with that. Um, study from Israel in 2015 by uh, the first office, I think, is Zeusman. Um, but they basically looked like if the institution patients who got meropenem versus artipenem, and the mortality was higher with hypoalbuminemia, and the inflection point was about 3.5. So, um, personally, that's kind of my cutoff is if, if you're less than 2.5, I, I won't usually do erdipenem unless it's like you're an air tract infection or something with drugs can concentrate, but particularly for like severe infections or um, you're not going to get a solution in the bowl or something like that. And then uh, for your question about ceftriaxone, it's a really good one. There's a paper in OPID actually, I believe it was this year pretty recently, uh, where they looked at the same sort of thing, albumin and um, 
that tracks the main point from it is there was actually no difference in clinical error, even when it was used for bacteremia. Uh, I'm sorry, that's what it's for, it's for bacteremia of enterobacterialis using ceftriaxone. Um, there was no difference in outcomes. The exception was critically ill patients in the ICU. They trended towards a higher mortality. It was close, but did not achieve statistical significance. Um, there's been a few times, like I've had a, I think last month we had a guy with probably one with cleft bacteremia or something. I didn't use ceftriaxone, but it at least, you know, I don't think you need to be as dogmatic with ceftriaxone as you do erdofenum. I think the data is a little bit stronger for erdofenum compared to marrows versus ceftriaxone compared to like ceftriaxone, for example. But I mean, certainly you have to be kind of careful, especially when your patients get down to like one or extremely low levels of albumin. Um, would you double the dose at that time to try to overcome it, or you just change to another antibiotic? Can I just use that for Yeah. I think that's for everything. Yeah, they're less than 2.5. And like, this is, of course, this is assuming you don't have like another option, right? You don't have like a no. drug. It's got to get high also and treat the same organism. But if you're stuck using a beta-lactam and you're in a severely hypoalbuminic patient, then that would probably gives another one. So what Guy right. is saying well, is correct. It, there was no mortality benefit, but there was a morbidity benefit. They also noted in that study and a couple other ones afterwards about ceftriaxone that for enterobacteriaceae specifically, um, as people who have hypoalbuminemia use ceftriaxone in those cases, there is a tend towards resistant pathogens and resistant clones developing, which is a problem. And that means that later on, you're in deep doo-doo when you try to use it or other, or other cephalosporins, as they would say in the UK. And so this also goes along with a lot of other drugs that are highly albumin bound. So there are certain papers that will suggest that you can actually increase the schedule of ertapenem and ceftriaxone to overcome the hypoalbuminemia. And, and and that looks like it could work. We've done it in a couple of cases here at the VA, but for the most part, it's it's still a little bit more, um, you know, science that needs to be elucidated. However, the need for therapeutic drug monitoring is massive. And again, at UF, they have this, and you can get levels and actually see what's really going on and match it up, you know, with your Monte Carlo, you know, simulation, all this stuff to see exactly what's happening with your beta-lactam level and the MIC at hand. And hopefully you have, you know, it's not a heterotropic, uh, you know, um, organism that's heterotropic to the antibiotic that you're using, but still, it is a point to be made. And I think that this is, this is very important when you're, you know, we give people antibiotics and, you know, especially for something like staph, where we use cefazolin um, or the second generation penicillins. And yeah, it's true, staph takes a long time to get rid of out of the bloodstream, but at the same time, could it be because their albumin is low? We also have to understand that albumin is also an, acute, an, an inverse um, acute phase reactant where it actually goes down because the liver is trying to make certain proteins and lead the, the, the protein production more towards complement and globulin so that plasma, you know, plasma cells et al can do what they need to do to, just to quell the infection. And so that is also an issue. However, I would argue that it's important both in an outpatient and an inpatient setting. And so, you know, for OPAT, I see these patients all the time that are on, you know, daptomycin, or as I call it, craptomycin, when they go out and they end up having a bad outcome or they fail. They fail the drug um, because of that. So, uh, again, it's just something to be, to be cognizant of, 
you know, we usually are so worried about levels of, you know, the immunoglycosides and vancomycin and et cetera. But beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring is a very, very, very important thing. And we should be doing more of it and investing more um, into it in our hospital settings for ASP. The uh, last thing I said to you, and I know you'll know this intuitively, but I can hear my mic correct when I was a fellow settlement. But um, for interbacterialis, you can have urtipenum resistant, meropenum susceptible, and depending on where you're practicing, your Vitec may only give you one of those. Um, and so before you use one or the other, you need to make sure it's still susceptible. It's usually a meropenum susceptible or urtipenum resistant, but just make sure that it is susceptible before you do that, don't just kind of say, oh, it's meropenum susceptible and then for case. Um, I don't know if you have any more uh, cases, but like this was fantastic. I have, I have two Thank more. Yeah. yeah. Two more, but not, nothing crazy. It's yeah. uh, it's interesting stuff. <laughs> All right. Thank you for hanging in there with me. All right. So. Okay. So this is a this is a cool article, very quickly uh, published in Antimicrobial Stewardship Healthcare Epi, uh, March first. So post sign off events and ID consultation and incidents of non adherence to ID recommendations of the post sign off. <laughs> a retrospective cohort study. I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, <laughs> so. Methods here, this is a retrospective study done uh, between for a year in 2019 in a Tokyo 790 bed medical center. Um, overall around at this at this specific institute, around 700 patients annually receive ID consultations. I think that's, a, I mean, compared to us over here, it's low. Um, they had two board certified ID attendings, two ID fellows and their rotating residents on the service. Um, and then multiple ID consultations. If, they're, if they had multiple ID consultations in the hospitalization, the first one was used in this study. And then if, uh, if they had multiple readmissions, just the first, first admission ID consultation was used as well. Um, so other than EMR documentation, uh, ID, the ID team communicated the actual recommendations to the, to the primary team in person or over the phone. Um, participants were all patients who received ID consultation. Exclusion criteria, outpatients, curbside, um, cases where the ID recommendation was di discontinued antibiotics as the final rec, uh, and then ID recommendation where there was no treatment duration given for antibiotics. So data collected and some of the definitions. So post sign-off events, they defined as treatment failure, antibiotic-related adverse events, hospital-acquired infections, uh, withdrawal of care, or ID reconsultation. Uh, adherence ID recs, following final recs, including antibiotic regimen, dosing, and duration, and then non-adherence to ID recommendations uh, and the reasons why were also attempted to be collected, although the reasons for non-adherence were not often documented in the notes. Uh, so hospital-acquired infection, they defined as uh, infection within index hospitalization appearing 48 hours or more after admission. And then they use a multivariate uh, logistic regression to predict factors associated with uh, not adherence. So uh, eventually at the, you know, 740 patients initially looked at and 367 initial uh, included at the end in the study, the top three departments that provided consultation for ID was crit care, general surgery, uh, and ortho. 
So there's pulse sign off events in 16% of patients. Um, I'll just I'll just quickly go through some of the high points because I know there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, ID was reconsulted in 61% of patients in the post sign off period. Uh, non adherence to ID Rex uh, was seen in 15.7% of patients, um, and 45% of the patients in the non adherent group had premature discontinu discontinuation of an antibiotics. Uh, one of the things that the paper mentions that some of them had been discharged to by the time before antibiotics were completed, so. That could have been a reason why some of the antibiotic courses were cut short. Uh, and they identified uh, development of a healthcare associated infection being the um, primary reason for non adherence uh, after uh, ID sign off. And there's a lot more interesting stuff here, but I know we're kind of short on time. Um, so they looked at the, the two groups, non adherence and adherence on both sides. Um, there was an increased length of discharge and a length of stay in the non adherence group. Um, and then there are also some, you can, there's some interesting stuff in terms of length of, uh, from ID consultation to sign off period and length of ID consultation as well that were shown here in the, in the study. But I think some of the real interesting things is how they brought up we can address this. So, of course, they mentioned how ID sign-off, that post-sign-off period has uh, shown that patient safety declines. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the things that they mentioned is they said that the ID team should have, you know, keep the some of these patients still on their list um, and check up on them occasionally, which when you're getting 700 consultations a year, you know, could possibly be okay. But for us, it's tough. Um, so the standby list? They have yeah, similar, an extensive standby list. Um, but I think the other thing that they that it, it identifies is uh, that we need to have thorough sign-off notes, um, not only with our recs, but if this were to happen, do this. Um, you know, I think our the people who consult us sometimes need very explicit instructions from our end. Um, and so I think documentation is... Uh, is just what's really identified here as being the the real um, focus for Marin. So I don't know if anybody has any. Yeah, it's um, interesting. Yeah. Like, um, just a, I'm just this is just a funny little tidbit from Houston. We 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 were told not to specifically put in discharge instructions till the ID person, like the physician, felt comfortable and I was like, okay, now they can go on because the moment you put it, could go on oral antibiotics with this one. They'll, they'll be like, all right, discharge, and then yeah. you'll be like, they're not on my list. Yeah. So things like maybe holding off saying oral till you were like, everything's done. Yeah. That was one thing that we did because we knew that it'd be a bad outcome if they just want oral. They probably need another week of IV, yeah. something or a checkup from the surgeon, mm -hmm. sure that this cleaner tube could come out. So that was one little kind of thing I used a lot. Just say, I know you want to. Yeah, your list down and you want to do it but try your best to like yeah. avoid doing that because they will jump the gun yeah. like hey sweet how are all my bikes being go yeah so that was like one little small thing that i changed like my habit changed um for that so um, we did a similar thing in my fellowship where you often want to put the final like the full discharge plan in until you were sort of ready to commit to the final discharge plan mm -hmm. very different culture from here where everyone wants to plan like on the day of initial yeah. yeah. are we going to need a pick are we yeah. going to yeah. you know what's the plan? Yeah. So I, I just want to add about this so in uh our, our culture here at TGH unless you really 
willing to have totally hands off on the patient, you can really suck. Because people rely on us to help the patient uh, from infectious perspective. Uh, it might be different at, uh, at Moffitt, but it's not that much different. The main difference is the, uh, they have more bandwidth of ID pharmacists at Moffitt. So when the patient is off and got discharged, the culture still be totally followed by uh, team. So one of the things that we implemented uh, about two, two years, two academic years now, but have revamped drastically during the last academic year was uh, having a non-patient backup team to upload the patient team. And actually the main goal of the backup team on non-patient will be more, more this type of planning. So you do not necessarily need to sign off. Don't sign off too early because even, even the patient on our uh, follow-up list that was this this paper, we not technically sign off, but we have to be clear like how often you're gonna see this patient. Uh, and when you say that you commit to it, like when you see the patient twice a week, see patient twice a week and tell them when you're gonna see the patient again. But uh, when you have the, uh, sometimes the patient uh, in your workup plan is not really completed, but almost there, and you need to get the load up to uh, down uh, to the end of your cap. And then you should sign out as well to the backup team so that they know what you're following and what is the whole other thing like that. Uh, we we have budget for the so if you all know that uh, we get a lot of help so that your cap is within uh, what we had agreed on that is good for your learning. I think it's always a balance of um, you you want to keep enough patients and you want to follow and have that patient safety and be on top of all the patients. But at the same time, you don't want your list to go to 35 yeah. when you're acute patient needs actual care, yeah. like intensive care bias yeah. having to be brushed off so you can follow five patients who have a plan. Yeah. And that's where the number of team is, like you can move patients there. But I mean, if they reach 30, then they're going to have to on that water. Um, but yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. And I do believe it that if we, when we find out patients, the care does yeah. dip a little bit, yeah. um, but even if we have a final antibiotic yeah. plan, because things happen, uh, sometimes resistance happens, and infections, uh, you can have a recurrence, whatever. And they don't notice it as fast as we would have done it if we were seeing them. So it's the other thing I would say if you're gonna have to deal with doing your practices, if you you have recommendations that's medically right for the patient, you shouldn't compromise that because of something like this. Um, obviously, you need to be trying to do whatever's evidence-based for the patient. We're constantly learning things we're doing now are wrong, and we're gonna learn how they're wrong, and we should be doing them in a different way. But if you you have a specific way that the patient medically should be treated. You don't need to be making compromises just to get them out of the hospital or things like that necessarily to expedite their care. That being said, I mean a lot of things like you know we talk about is like IV to oral antibiotic for bacteremia, zoroscopy, and we're getting more and more data for that, and that's might be the way that we're going to go starting to treat those patients. But um, probably had experiences where you're called to say, hey, you know, can we do this or that to make it easier to treat and that might not be the best thing to kind of treat what's going on there. So. In some of the fields, this is something Dr. Green always does is, you know, you, you really should be as specific and explicit as possible. And that means 
drug of choice, primary regimen, dosing, uh, frequency as well, um, as well as, you know, duration, an end date, lab monitoring for, you know, and the frequency for that, and which labs you want to get. If the patient needs to go on a fit joint, you know, if it's going to be IV or PO, and if they need any ID clinic follow-up as well. So if you guys stick to that explicitness in your sign-off notes, that will also kind of maybe decrease the questions or doubts from our consultants and people that are, are referring patients to us. And also just kind of also leave it open. If you have any questions or, or, or concerns or, or just call us. Um, if you switch an antibiotic, you say, okay, no, that's not the plan. Let's switch it to this alternative. And it'll keep you guys going. All right. I think so. Uh, this is a, a good, strong argument for a standby list, huh? <laughs> <laughs> There's mixed feelings on the standby. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely mixed feelings about the standby list. <laughs> yeah. But if you are going to put somebody on the standby list, you know, mixed feelings, attendant, dependent, put it in the note. We will. I will do them on the regular list and do one or two times a week. Yeah. Where you say I'm going to see the patient yeah. one or twice. Yeah. But if you're not going to see the patient on the weekend, just yeah. say, oh, we'll see you again on Monday. But if you need any assistance on the weekend, call the fellow at that phone call. So it's, it's about, I mean, that's our main way of communicating, right? Yeah. You cannot pick up the phone and call it again. Yeah. Those patients where I was once a week or twice a week, depending on what regimen they were starting And then, yeah, the weekend we had a little stop raise. See you again Monday. Revamp yeah. it's a long holiday. We say we'll see you after the holiday. Call if anything urgent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. To be clear, so that they know what to expect. I would. I would offer. I would offer the caution here, because some of our colleagues, who you know, and I'm talking about not in the division. I'm talking about whether it's in you know departmental side, college side, don't always read the notes, or they won't even sign the notes for a while. I had this problem here with SICU where, um, you know, some of the faculty won't read the notes. So uh, I actually will call them and tell them, uh, this is in the note, but I'm telling you now what we, I think we, you know, you guys should do. Again, you know, we're consultant secondary physicians. We are not primary care physicians. If we wanted to do that, and then that's fine. But at an academic institution, you know, ACGME rules state that the primary team has to be putting in 70% or more of the orders and also be doing most of the managing. So we can suggest and hover over the patients all we want, but if the primary team is going to do what they want to do, that's what they're going to do. We see this evidence with the antibiotic stewardship program here at the VA where, you know, we actually track what the fellows, uh, you know, Uriel just got off now, he just got his report, and there were a few cases where um, the primary teams refuse to listen to our recommendations. And again, that's the beauty of, you know, America. <laughs> um, <laughs> how, however, uh, even though we are, um, you, you know, we think it's best for the patient, like Guy is saying, with standard of care, with guideline, you know, um, uh, based, you know, decisions, and also with evidence, science, but still people will do whatever they want to do. So, you know, you can advocate and do the best you can, but at the same time, it's, you know, you can't, you can't hover over these people because all you're going to do, and I think someone mentioned this, you know, there are acute patients that you have to see. 
and and you know we can't do everything. We're not we're not cephalopods with eight to ten arms and and three hearts and able to do those kinds of things. So that's the my tuppence on this issue. <laughs> I agree with Mel. Sometimes people don't read the notes. I mean, Jessica and I had a patient that was not reflect and they reconciled the tech of year. And we were and they consulted us yeah. to know if he needed to be on Integavir. And I had done a note a month prior saying no longer he's, he's not on it. So he's not on it. Just ask him if he's taking it or not. And you can say, oh, I need a reason you can feel your pain. Um, uh, but remember, in the private world, if you guys are going, these if your consultants are your commission, this is what you live off of, you strive off of. So breathe in. Keep calm and keep going. I guess uh, from I have something in the chat from other people. He said she usually have all separate follow-up with than to intermittent check on for just cultures and have about big guys in present. Or be curious. Thank you for doing that. I'm not doing that. And then she just got told by hospitalist that all she does is replace potassium. I should be ordering the bone marrow by all cultures. What? That's ridiculous. Oh, so loud, oh, wow. Excuse me now. <laughs> yeah. It's so, this demonstrates where medicine is heading, where we see, and this is the probably the, the real point about this discussion, is, you know, it's not my problem, it's yours. And, and that is not, you know, why we are all doing what we're doing. And you know, trying to better you know medicine and to teach and to do other things. You know, again, it's not a we don't live in a private practice world. I mean, TGH kind of is in a way, but that's not that's not the the credo of why we're in academics. And and so it, it's for other people to really 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 understand you know why we're here, what we're doing. And for a hospitalist to say something like that, like to be honest, I mean that person should get out of medicine. Uh, because they're not, their heart isn't in it. They're just there for, you know, um, for, for their own own reasons. But that's not the mission that we as a university should and and as faculty should be doing. It, it sounds like this person's probably possibly private, but from what Vivian was kind of insinuating. But at the same time, that's not what we're trying to do. Uh, that's just my my thought. Guys, let me get to the home stretch. I'm almost there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, no, this is done. So I felt a little, a slightly attacked when I saw this. It's just an editorial commentary. Another new antibiotic for skin infections and why ID specialists are hypocrites. So initially I was like, this can't be an ID doc who wrote this, but it is a, a Dr. Lauren Miller from uh, Harbor UCLA Medical Center, who's a ID and uh, MPH doc, and it, it was a little thought provoking, so I think we'll end on this. So one of the things that he writes in the paper, ID specialists are unique in the medical world. We clamor for sorely needed new drugs, and when these drugs are released, we typically do everything in our power to minimize their use. Um, so he kind of talks about staph infections, infections, and talks about delafloxacin, <clears throat> which is the new, which is this new quinolone. It has covers MRSA, covers pseudomonas, doesn't have the QT prolonging effects, but still has some of the tendon side effects of the quinolone class. Um, and how the thing that he draws a parallel to is Vank, I guess when it, this is before my time, of course, but 60 years ago when it came up, uh, they actually called it Mississippi mud because it was so 
impure and it was like a muddy brown color. So that's what they called it. And at that time, reserved for serious beta-lactam allergies and rare resistant infections. And so he's saying now, you know, it's one of the most commonly prescribed antibiotics, even though that was the thought process at that time. Um, so he kind of draws a, a little bit of a parallel to delafloxacin and how, you know, it's not really used and we don't want people to use it. But, you know, there's also concerns for easily developing resistance, which has happened with quinolones previously. Um, but he's saying, you know, maybe we should give these antibiotics a chance because maybe it can become mainstay in the future and that we come off as hypocrites. But that we, we act this way because we know our role in stewardship, which is, which is the other side of it. So I'll end with that. Food for thought. I don't know if anyone has any. <laughs> I just, I, I didn't know, we were just talking about it. So I thought that was a very, how should I say, but it was more of like a private, but still uh, academic. But like, we wanted around a cyclone to have tagging We did a present, presentation in the stewardship committee. We're like, tagging cycle side effect profile is horrible. I like it. We like around a cyclone. Immediately, they gave it to us. And the other thing we always, I enjoy looking at going over with fellows is, you know, look at your antibiograms, each place. Where I was, MDRs were all over the place. Like, a patient who came in for UTI, not transplanted, you know, compromised, they had MDR for some odd reason. I don't know what's in Houston, water, but... <laughs> and then I'm talking to Dr. Henley, and he's like, yeah, we don't see that compared to, like, at least, compared to where I was. So, I mean, it's going to depend on where we use it, I guess, a lot. But, like, I, I got to say, it was a lot easier to get certain type of antibiotics over there for us to use. And then I worked at other hospitals where it's like much harder. It depends on your stewardship. It depends on, I think, your antibiogram where you are, too. So, But, I mean, there's a good, unique perspective to see. But, you know, I think we should do a stewardship, of course, but I think we also need to be more open depending on where you are and how All right, as far as some of these new drugs, too, like you got a cheap option versus exactly. versus the new shiny thing. <laughs> Even if you want to use it, the hospital is going to be like, no, I don't think so, dog. <laughs> so, so, I mean, there's a little bit more to the story, I think, than he's making, that quote's making out to be. Yeah, it's a tongue-in-cheek article. It is. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Especially with the title. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's highlighting an important part that we do, stewardship, but also pointing out, you know, the hubris of the field and that certainly there's situations where you should be using um, some of these newer drugs, particularly if they have an advantage uh, over others. It's also important to know your microbiology. I know kind of what you're finding about here with Staph aureus, um, you know, vancomycin, often the Staph aureus can get rid of resistant vancomycin. I mean, you're talking like true bank-resistant Staph aureus is a handful of cases. I mean, you've got visa, but it's not it's not true resistance. So it has a high barrier of resistance versus something like all the other portfolios for Staph aureus. One mutation is done. Um, I mean, delafloxacin hasn't been in practice as much to know if it's going to have more durable. That's part of our job, too, is knowing when to use certain drugs, when not to. But I, I do agree with kind of the, the the highlights. You don't need to be dogmatic about you should never use a newer drug because there are clinical scenarios when um, they may have a benefit over some of our older agents. And just knowing when to push, when to not. And, and ultimately, um, part of the stewardship aim is it's not necessarily to restrict antibiotics for the patient is to make sure that you're doing the most targeted drug with the least amount of side effects and then also preserving that for the future patients kind of coming forward. So it doesn't mean you shouldn't use more or newer drugs or, or other drugs like that. It's just kind of being smart about when you, you choose to do so. We're done. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Appreciate it.